Hey, what's up, fam? Champagne Sharks. Uh, how's it going? This is Trevor T. You can find me on Twitter at Ricky Rawls, R I C K Y R A W L S, no underscore. And just wanted to get some house cleaning out of the way. If you enjoy the show and you want extra episodes, please go to Patreon for Champagne Sharks. For $5 a month, you get not only um, one episode, but two episodes a week. And in addition, you get the backlog of back premium episodes. You get to listen to all the old episodes that were premium that you might have missed. So that's about 30 episodes at this point. Also, um, we're a little behind. We're a little behind on the schedule, but it's not because we're recording less. What's happened is because of uh, commitments and everything, the biggest bottleneck time-wise for this show is the editing, the production. So we're recording at the regular pace, but I do all the production and editing myself, and that part has fallen behind. So don't worry. You're still going to get the same amount of episodes. What's going to happen is there'll probably be, there'll probably be just a bunch of episodes released at once as they get um, edited. That's where the catch-up is happening. So... Just be patient with us. You're going to get all the episodes. When it's all said and done, no matter when we fall behind or whatever, we'll always uh, catch up in the long run. Also, there's now a Champagne Sharks Reddit. So, well, first, the Patreon. I don't know if I gave the address. Patreon.com slash Champagne Sharks, one word. There's a Reddit. Uh, I don't have anything to do with the Reddit. Um, but I figured I wanted to promote it since it seems like a good place for people to communicate with each other who enjoy the show. So that is reddit.com forward slash r forward slash champagne sharks, one word. So check that out. Um, it's getting busier since I started mentioning it on air. And if time permits, I'm popping now and again. Um, champagne sharks Twitter. Just go to at Champagne Sharks, one word, check that out. And the other thing is, if you can't donate, share the podcast with friends and strangers. That's the next best thing that you can do for the show. You know, share it wide and often. Tell people how much you like it. Tell them how much you dislike it. Fuck it. And last, one more thing. Leave a five-star review on iTunes if you feel so inclined that also helps the show helps it um get promoted so that's always good as well and i think that's everything i feel like there was one more thing but uh it's not coming to me so it probably wasn't that important so yeah that's basically um what's what so moving on to our guest for today we have um Daniel Bessner, I'll allow him to introduce himself and what he does. Yeah, uh, thanks. And I'm I'm just personally waiting for the Champagne Sharks merchandise. I hope that comes soon, soon enough. But uh, I am a history professor, actually a professor of international studies, but I did my degree in history at the University of Washington. And I focus on intellectual history and U.S. foreign policy with a basic interest in examining why Americans have made foreign policy in the way that they have, mostly since 1945, but I do kind of the entirety of the 20th century. And I, I really uh, 
really happy to be here. Uh, first time guest, of course, long time listener. So thanks for inviting me on. <laughs> yeah, there was a nice bit of uh, serendipity with how uh, Daniel and I uh, arranged this because he was already on my list of people to invite to the show. And I have a, I actually have a spreadsheet of people to invite in the show. And you were actually going to be next. Oh, nice. And at the same time, by a weird coincidence, you contacted me to tell me that you were a fan of the show. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I, 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 <laughs> it was so weird. God, God does exist. I mean, do you need any more proof than that? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's pretty That's pretty good. Before we get to the nuts and bolts, do you actually have a recommendation for uh, merchandise for Champagne Sharks? Well, like, I, mean, I was thinking a t-shirt and coffee tumblers. That's, that's all I have so far. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the podcast merchandise that I think is really good is t-shirts, obviously, but also coffee mugs. I feel like coffee is a good way to go with, with podcast merchandise. And I mean, it's such a cool logo. You know, I feel like that could be big in a lot of areas of the country. You know, you could see people walking around with their champagne sharks t-shirts and drinking their champagne sharks coffee. Yeah, so you would go with uh, a coffee mug, old school mug, yes. and not like one of those coffee thermoses. Yeah, I would go with it with a coffee old school mug, definitely, because I think it's a little cheaper. Okay, cool. I I'm subjecting the listeners to like my capitalist brainstorm. <laughs> brainstorming you know so but they'll have to deal with it so, so, so. <laughs> no, um, we love it we love it so uh, t tell me um uh, and tell the listeners about the book you have coming up sure yeah so uh, so basically uh i have this book coming up and i, I don't know if, if the listeners are aware but oftentimes it's it's um it's my first book and first books usually build off of the dissertation so I've been working on this this subject, um, an intellectual biography of this guy named uh, Hans Speyer since about 2008. So it's about a decade now before the book comes out. So I've uh, spent a, a decade of my life uh, thinking about this guy and what he thought. And uh, what an intellectual biography is, and it differs from a normal biography, is that I really focus primarily on this guy's thought and how his thought developed over time. And why I think it's important to examine this guy, uh, Hans Speyer, is because he was um, the one of the founding heads of the Rand Corporation's, uh, one of its divisions. He was a founding head of its social science division. Uh, and the Rand Corporation is uh, probably the first, not probably, it is the first modern think tank, think tank as we think of it, even though there were some precursors like the Brookings Institute and the Council on Foreign Relations. But Rand's really the first think tank, and Speyer was one of the most influential people involved in it. And I wanted to examine essentially what made someone who had grown up in uh, Weimar, Germany, the Weimar Republic in the 1920s, which was the government of Germany uh, before Hitler came to power, a democracy. What made someone like him, who was a socialist in Weimar, eventually become what we would consider today to be a national security hawk? And, and the way I did that was basically by exploring how his thought changed between the 1920s and the 1950s. And uh, the book will be coming out in April, but you could pre-order it now just to get in a quick plug. Uh, it's called Democracy in Exile, and, and you could get it on Amazon or in Cornell University Presses. Yeah, and by all website. means, don't worry about making the plug quick. Make it as slow as... I mean, this whole <laughs> thing is basically a plug. That's... that's Don't be shameless with it. It's fine. But... Um, yeah, and, and I... Yeah. No, I'm just going to say, I think it's it's important um, 
just generally to to support obviously my own work of course but uh, academic books generally in, in a in a culture where so much so much writing and so much commentary appears ephemeral i think it's important that we carve out a space for people to think long and hard about a subject you know take 10 years to think about a subject and then, and then write a book about it so uh support academic publishing even if it's not my own book but uh it would be preferable if it was in fact and i have my to say own. as someone who has recently gotten into reading more academic um, books. Like I've always read academic studies, but I tended to be a kind of person that would be more into kind of pop history or pop whatever when it came to my actual books. In recent years, I've gotten more into the habit of trying to read uh, academic historians as opposed to uh, pop historians. And I it's a remarkable difference. It does really make a difference. The citations the level of uh referring to primary sources and sending you along the way it's 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 more difficult to read in some ways as far as um it's not always the easiest breeziest read but you get a much more rewarding uh body of knowledge from it yeah, you really learn something. I think when you when you when you sit down with an academic book that someone spent a good portion of their life on and, and take it all in, and I think there there should be more room for that in our culture generally. And to be fair, there are some academic books that are have monstrously dry prose. And yes, uh, there are man. <laughs> yes, and I've been reading uh, your book, and your book has been very readable. It's been very good. I normally like to read the whole book before I have a guest on, but. Your book, while it was very readable, it was very information dense. The way I read, I take a lot of notes. So, like just mm -hmm. just the first chapter, I have this littered with notes. You mentioned like a lot of names. You paint a very good picture of the Weimar Republic and the intellectual climate that Speyer uh, came up in. It's a very like that first chapter alone could be expanded into a book. Yeah, yeah, it really could. I mean, the the, the 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 vagaries of uh, German socialism in the 1920s and how a bunch of people dealt with it it's really a subject unto itself of course there have been there have been reams uh, written about it but I think there's still a lot more to be done especially in light of what we're going through now really taking a presentist lens and seeing what we can learn or not learn from the experience of the Social Democratic Party. Of, of Germany in the 20s and the early 30s, you know, a, a good party that ultimately failed and gave way to Hitler um, and see see what we can and can't learn for that. I myself do not think that we're anywhere near an, an American Hitler or an American Weimar Republic, but we might want to talk about that a bit later. Some famous historians disagree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I think we have a kind of refined, more genteel version of a lot of the same dynamics you... yes mentioned in there like i agree it's not the same intensity but it does have uh a lot of the same undercurrents just a more um refined version and that's what thing that jumped out at me in the first chapter when i was reading about how um the party that um spire was part of it reminded me it was it was the spd and it reminded me very much of the current dsa and the burning wing of the democrat party and uh, those type of socialists and the fight that they had with the communist wing and it made me think right. of all the um of all the what they call them tankies that exist now who think the dsa is way too soft or whatever and then within the spd there were the more centrist 
members of the SPD and the more kind of radical versions. And also there were, of course, the Nazis. Uh, yeah, the Nazis. Need, need no explanation. I'm not going to bother <laughs> to explain uh, that. But, you know, the, the way it was described, it wasn't that different than the MAGA and and the Republican Party. There were a lot of parallels that I found interesting. And I had uh, two questions. First is, was this written after the election or during it? And do you think that kind of uh, informed you, even if subconsciously, to kind of create a bit of presentism in the writing? Or did it just happen to work out unwittingly to parallel? And also, if you could also expand on whether you think the parallels that I drew are accurate, <clears throat> accurate if they're reaches, so forth. No, absolutely. Uh, so actually, the entire book, every, everything in the book was written well before the election. So there was absolutely no presentist idea really in mind. Some of the final uh, passages and, and um, some of the refinements were written during the primary, the Democratic primary between Bernie and Hillary. But really, the first chapter has been done for quite a while, a few years. So that's just, that is just happenstance. And I think it has to do with the fact that we're still very much living in, in the world that the social Democrats or really everyone in the 1920s was living in. We're still confronting the same problems of modernity, just in, as you kind of mentioned, in a different key or in a more genteel way. So just to take one example, the guy I focus on, Hans Speyer in the 20s, he was very worried that uh, printing press, uh, like printing technologies have got had gotten relatively cheap, and that enough people were able to put out broadsides or little magazines. Um, and whoever really had access to a little amount of capital could uh, spread their political views. And he was very worried that this would basically dumb down political discourse, it would basically turn people who shouldn't have access to a lot, uh, shouldn't, shouldn't, uh, who he thought at least shouldn't have access to a loud voice. Uh, they were given a loud voice. And you can see the parallels in what people have argued against Twitter and um, either members of the alt-right or whoever you want to point to if you, if you don't like particular centrist Democrats having a voice that they shouldn't have. And so we're really still living in the same world that the interwar SPD uh, was living in to a great degree. And I think for that reason, I think the parallels you draw are actually right. So just to draw it out more, to, to take it um a little bit uh, to expand it a bit is, is um, the SPD was divided between essentially a right wing and a center, which wanted to make the uh, the party into less of a class focused party and what they called a people's party, and they would have policies and programs that appealed to uh, everyone in Germany. Whereas at, at, uh, on one hand, and on the other hand, there was a left wing of the SPD to which Speyer at least. Uh, initially belonged, and he eventually moved away from Marxism, and we could talk about why, but there was a left wing that wanted to make it an explicitly class-based, and, and in that moment, working-class-based politics, which is, of course, the the type of problems that we still have today and the type of discussions that we have today. What we really don't have, except maybe a little bit only on Twitter, is a communist party to the left. I mean, uh, and in 1920s and early 1930s Germany, the, the Social Democrats were really worried about their left wing, their communist left wing, who wanted to essentially revolutionize society, while the SPD was much more of a reformist bent, albeit in socialist directions. And, and really, we don't have in the United States today, a, a violently uh, revolutionary left, and maybe a little bit on Twitter, uh, tankies. I always wondered what that meant. I've seen it a lot, but I, I'm kind of new to Twitter and I'm figuring it all out. We really don't have that. 
So I guess that's one of the major differences. But I really think the parallels are are very strong. And I think it's important um, just to finish up here that the, when the left is looking at historical examples or historical historical parallels, I, I in my uh, opinion, as really a historian and, and someone on the left today, it's that the SPD provides a much much more interesting model than uh, or relevant model, if not more interesting, relevance probably the better word than the Soviet Union, which uh, Russia pre-Soviet Russia and even, of course, Soviet Russia is a very different society uh, from the United States, whereas uh, interwar Germany, of course, different from the modern United States, has a lot of uh, similarities in culture and political forms and and even political institutions and organizations. So I think it really does have a lot to, if not teach us lessons, to illuminate some of the problems that uh, exist today. Um, Now, tell us who Speyer was and why He's particularly interesting because he's a person that is not as well known <laughs> as um, I think kind of warrants his influence. Like compared to his actual influence that I got from this book, I'm a little surprised how underknown that uh, he is. So if you could explain who he is and why you think he's important to know and also why he's not as known as he might be. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point, especially the last one, and it really gets into trends in historical writing. So, uh, and I, I hope I, I'm just going to paint a broad picture here for all my historians listening. I know it's a bit more nuanced, but broadly speaking, um, in the 19 after the 1968 student rebellions across college campuses, um, and in the 1970s and 80s, there was a turn to in professional history toward what what's called social history. The history of people from below when you're not examining uh, elites or what was you know, pejoratively termed dead white men and you try to reproduce the history of working people or what eventually be, uh, came to be called uh, ordinary people, that was pretty dominant in the 70s and the 80s. And in the 90s and 2000s, there was what was called a cultural or linguistic turn where people really started focusing on the history of gender and the history of race and to some degree the history of class. But from my limited understanding, gender and race history was much more prevalent. And so there were a lot of fantastic, really important books written about all of these topics. But as it happened, um, a lot of the elites and especially the elite intellectuals weren't really written about between the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And it's really Really only after, and this is just my take, after 9-11 happened and the state began to exert a much more forceful or at least visible role in the Americans' lives after the Cold War, where it really didn't seem to be as, as prevalent, even though in some degrees it was, you know, Clinton, the era of big government is over, but uh, with the George W. Bush White House and, the, you know, the state coming back onto the scene, a lot of historians of my generation have returned to examining uh, these dead dead white males and seeing their influence on on the culture. And I think that's why Speyer and a lot of other people like him weren't really known. So it's ironic. I don't know uh, if you've ever heard of the Frankfurt School, but, you know, Max Horkheimer and Theodore yes, Adorno, yes. those people. Uh, of Yes, exactly. Dialectic of Enlightenment. So those were like all people in Spire's extended like colleague, his extended crew uh, in, in uh, interwar New York. And a lot more people know about them because they were left-wing radical critics and they wrote a lot of philosophy. But whereas other people of the sort of exile generation that Horkheimer and Adorno were part of, people like Spire who went to work for the state and I would say had a more impactful role, at least in American political history, were actually not studied for decades. So you're getting a return to these people 
um, which is actually pretty interesting. It says something about the develop the history of history, essentially the the history of American historiography. Yeah, and ironically, I think something that helps um, Horkheimer and Adorno, Adorno and those guys is, ironically enough, because uh, I believe they're Jewish, right? Yes. Yeah, I think being that they're Jewish. Um, a lot of those white nationalists and alt-right <laughs> types and those guys get kind of hung up on them because they get to use them as proof of uh, a Jewish conspiracy. And they love saying cultural Marxism. Right. And they love making the Frankfurt School into like this boogeyman. Yeah. So I think in addition to leftists keeping those people alive because they're radicals, I think that the right has done a lot to keep them alive too because i actually heard about cultural marxism first from kooky right-wingers right. <laughs> before i delved into it and learned about it from the actual left and and spire is not jewish no no spire was not jewish um but he was actually of lutheran uh descent so to get into why he was actually important so he was the first graduate student of this very famous intellectual uh this guy named carl Mannheim who was really one of the first people to connect what one's ideas were to their social position in a non-Marxist way. Marx had done a little of that, but Mannheim really took it to another level. Uh, and he, Mannheim's also the guy who developed generational analysis. So when you see generational analysis, that's actually to a large degree influenced by Mannheim. But so Speyer was uh, this left-wing socialist in Weimar, and he's exiled in 1933 when Hitler comes to power. And he's one of the founders of something called the university in exile. So uh, T, you're in New York, so you know the New School of Social Research. What made the New School, what's actually now called the New School, but what made the New School famous was that they actually brought in uh, about 189 exiles who were forced to flee Germany uh, in 1933, either because they were Jewish, um, like like Horkheimer and Adorno, who actually didn't flee that early, but you know fled because they were Jewish, or people like Speyer, who fled uh, either because they were socialist or in Speyer's case, was married to a Jew. And that this university in exile saved a lot of the most famous intellectuals of the 20th century, people like Leo Strauss, who was one of Speyer's best friends, or Claude Levi-Strauss, the anthropologist, were saved by the New School. So Speyer worked at the New School throughout the 30s. And then uh, World War II breaks out in 1939. The U.S. joins it in 1941. And at that point, the American state needed to basically hire people who actually knew German well enough to create propaganda or to study Germany that would be uh, in, in an effective way. And so in 1941, uh, soon after, actually in early 42, Speyer joins uh, what's called the Office of War Information. So have you ever heard of the Office of Strategic Services? Yes. So that's the generally considered to be, quote unquote, the precursor of the CIA. Um, but along with the Office of Strategic Services, which was essentially covert operations, Franklin, uh, President Franklin, Franklin Roosevelt created on that same day something called the Office of War Information. And that was essentially like a, a, a ministry of propaganda. Yeah, I never knew right? about that one until I read your book. Uh, I knew about the o right. OSS, but that was new to me. Yeah, and so this was the OWI, the Office of War Information, was in charge of first domestic propaganda and foreign propaganda. But the domestic propaganda campaign was eventually kind of shut down in 43, 44, because critics of the New Deal, critics of Roosevelt's New Deal said that the OWI was just serving as a New Deal mouthpiece. So the domestic part was shut down, but the foreign part uh, kept on going. 
And, and so Speyer started working for the OWI in 1944. He worked for another government agency beforehand, but he essentially became the guy who was literally in charge of creating the propaganda directives that were gui- uh, that guided American propaganda sent to Germany during uh, D-Day and beyond. So you have this really interesting moment where a German exile is forced into the United States and then enters the American state, and then it starts writing the propaganda sent to his former homeland in an attempt to defeat this homeland, right? So you have these really strange connections that only were possible in the mid-20th century. And so Speyer does that. He gets a reputation. He does some work for the State Department. And then he founds, uh, becomes one of the founding heads of um, the RAND Corporation uh, in, in the sense that I said earlier, he founded its social science division. And why this is important is that uh, a lot of the nuclear strategists who you might, might have heard of, people like Bernard Brody, uh, people like uh, Albert Wallstetter and Herman Kahn, these were all people who worked for RAND. And Speyer really started the social science division that brought social science to policymakers' attentions, right? So today, we take it for granted that academics like Henry Kissinger or Zbig Brzezinski or Condoleezza Rice or Paul Wolfowitz, like, of course, you'll, you'll ask academic experts for advice on foreign policy, right? But this didn't really occur in an institutional way until after World War II. And Speyer was really critical and founding these institutions. And why I think that's important is because I think these institutions are founded on an anti-democratic basis. Rand, did Rand exist before Spire? Did he get in the on the ground floor of it? Or that, so, to what extent did it exist before he joined it? Right. So that's so basically the war ends in May 45, and uh, one of the heads of the Army Air Forces, the Air Force wasn't an independent branch of the military until the National Security Act of 47, I believe. So it definitely not independent until 47. So one of the heads of the Air Force thought that um one of the great things of the war it, it had been that it had basically invited a ton of academics to use their knowledge for war fighting purposes. And the Air Force, in its attempt to become an independent branch, independent of the army of which it was a part, uh, this guy named General Henry Hap, a nickname Hap Arnold, decided that he needed to ensure that academics retained uh, their connections to the Air Force because he thought um, that they were going to return to the university because who the hell would want to work for the military when he didn't have to, right? This was the thinking at the time. And so what he did was he gave $10 million to Douglas Aircraft Company, which was a, a, one of the biggest aircraft companies at the time, was eventually subsumed into Boeing to essentially found this private Air Force think tank, right, that he called Project RAND, which is an acronym for Research and Development, RAND, Research and Development. And so the idea was you'll have all these smart guys and they'll be making the Air Force the most um, basically better. And the Air Force, of course, you have to remember at the time, was in charge of the strategic bombing force and hence in charge of the atomic bomb. So it was the most prestigious of the military branches, right? So we brought all these intellectuals uh, into RAND, uh, but at first it's only physicists, uh, engineers, and a few mathematicians. So RAND started in 46 until 1948. It's basically just what we'd call harder natural science guys. And finally in 48, um, they start deciding that they, if they want to fight a good war, you can't just know physics. You can't just know math. You actually need to know about the societies that you're uh, fighting or that you're allied with and the economics. And so they uh, basically invite in 48 um, Spire and other social scientists into the organization. And that's when RAND becomes nominally independent. And I say nominally because it's basically working primarily on an Air Force contract, right? And this leads re- to really interesting questions 
and about what's a part of the state in the United States, right? Is Rand a part of the state? It's technically private, but its major contract at the time was the Air Force, right? And so that we could get into that too about what that says about American state policy and stuff. Um, explain the title because the, the title, uh, as you read the book, I kind of took the title as a throwaway at first, like, okay, he left Germany, whatever. But um, <laughs> when I started reading it, I started realizing the title was kind of important. It, it's um, actually, you know what? I'm going to read a, a passage that I think is very related to the title and then you can expand on it. But it said, "Sure." Uh, Speyer's understanding of the Nazi triumph led him to embrace four ideas that became central to the logic of governance he helped institutionalize in the Cold War United States. First, Weimar's collapse convinced Speyer that democracy was a weak political form that could fall prey to radical threats. He became forever wary that extremist political movements of the right and left, no matter how apparently feeble, retained the potential to overthrow democratic governments. Second, Speyer attributed Weimar's failure to his own and by implication, other socialist intellectuals' naive conviction that the masses had capacity to be educated to make wise political decisions. In his exile, he held that the Nazi victory demonstrated that mass education was a project doomed to disappoint. Third, the failures of social democratic theory and practice encouraged Speyer to reject Marxism as irrelevant, while the KPD's repeated attacks on the SPD and the Republic compelled him to diagnose communism as malevolent. Anyone who identified as a Marxist was at best unsophisticated and at worst malicious. Finally, Hitler's rise prompted Speyer to redefine his understanding of democracy, whereas before 1933, democracy had meant for Speyer economic, cultural, and political equality. Afterward, it referred only to an under-theorized notion of procedural equality. Democracy, in essence became vague, negative, became the vague, negative image of authoritarianism, a concept largely shorn of substantive content. Despite these shifts in Spire's thought, one theme remained constant in his thinking before and after 1933. In both periods, Spire argued that intellectuals had an essential role to play in modern politics. In his exile, Spire maintained that socialist intellectuals primary mistake in Weimar had been to focus on educating an uneducable mass constituency. He declared that instead of attempting to enlighten the public, pro-democratic intellectuals must use their knowledge in the service of the American state. In short, the Nazi victory led Speyer to conclude that ordinary people were irrational, dogmatic, and manipulable, and that only elites, whether intellectuals or decision-makers, could be trusted. And um, after I heard that, after I read that, it really crystallized um, the title. And I apologize for reading such a long passage. I normally don't do that, but I, I wanted to capture it in its entirety. And what I want to ask you is, do you think in a post-Trump era, this idea is worth revisiting? Well, it's really interesting. And I think it's one of the most critical questions that not only people who claim to be Democrats, but also the left wing needs to confront, which is namely the question of political education. So in the 20s, Speyer was convinced, uh, as it was pointed to there, that people could be educated, right? So the basic idea of democracy is that every individual citizen 
has the at the very least the capacity right to participate wisely or actively in some sense either through representatives or personally depending on the system in democratic governance right but in the 20s and 30s a lot of intellectuals Speyer included uh, began to conclude that a variety of things dem- seemed to demonstrate that this actually wasn't correct and that you actually couldn't really trust the public, right? So in the, on, in the America- Yeah, and I can, see, I can see in today's climate with Trump and yep. his election, I can see a lot of uh, people on the left getting seduced by yes. uh, that idea again. And you, I mean, you saw it right after, right after the election. I don't know if you remember, there was this New Yorker cartoon going around where there was this guy with like a big burly mustache on a plane and it said something along the lines of like, I want to fly the plane. Like, uh, forget this pilot. Don't you all just trust me? You know, basically pointing out how stupid ordinary people were. And of course, it appeared in the liberal New Yorker. I'm sure a lot of people got a chuckle. But I really think that this is the idea that you can't trust people is really one of the foundational facts of modern American democracy, right? Like, there's, it's not a surprise that since 1945, what branch of government has become so powerful. It's the executive, right? It's the, basically the, the king that the founders created and, and not the Congress, right? So, and the, and the judicial, that, that too, right, the yeah. Supreme Court, you know, has done a lot too. And I think that falls into the same category, exactly. like of the not least, trusting the people. Right. The least democratic aspect, uh, the least democratic parts of the American state have become the most powerful. And what I argue in this book, at least, is that it was uh, it's linked to the experience and the confrontation with Nazism, and in particular, I think American liberalism. The state that we live in today is a liberal state in the sense that it was created in the late forties um, by liberals, essentially the National Security Council, the CIA, the Department of Defense, what's generally referred to as a national security state. Like think tanks like Rand, which are like kind of part of the state but kind of not. These are basically all institutions that have no democratic accountability by design, right? The idea is that you can't really trust people. You know, if people have their own druthers, maybe there are at least people thought this in the 40s and the 50s, maybe they're not going to commit themselves to fighting a war with the Soviet Union, right? Which was an existential threat to democracy. So what people like Speyer did was they, they – um, decided, not like in a, in a conspiratorial way, this is more the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times, they decided that they needed to create these institutional safeguards for democracy. But what I really want to emphasize here is the sort of contingent nature of it, right? So so just to take it back a bit, in the 30s, when Speyer was at the New School before World War II broke out, he, he developed this argument for propaganda by saying that, you know, propaganda, it's not really for democracy, right? You're manipulating people. You're not really engaging them. But we have to use these sorts of tools, propaganda or mass mobilization or sort of centralized economic planning, uh, because if we don't use those tools and fascist states like Nazi Germany and uh, Italy, uh, Mussolini's Italy will be able to destroy us. But what's critical to emphasize is that in the 30s and 40s, Speyer argued that once you defeated the Nazis, that this would no longer be a case, right? He argued that democracy would return to normal. But what happens, of course, is after the war, the Soviet Union emerges as another potential threat. And particularly after the Soviet Union got a bomb, Speyer and other people like him began to argue that you needed to create a permanent or a semi-permanent solution to the problem of public opinion. And instead of using things, means like propaganda or, or, or mass mobilization, even though those were used to a degree, they created these sort of institutions that were specifically designed to be outside the purview of the American public, with the idea being, though, of course, that when the Soviet Union was eventually destroyed, who knows when that would happen, 
but democratic functioning would return to normal. And that's where I got the title of democracy in exile, right? Because they exiled democracy. They didn't get rid of democracy, people like Spire, but they exiled it to some unknown future when it would have when it would be allowed to function but of course that unknown future never came even when the soviet union was defeated the united states didn't reform itself didn't reform these institutions and especially after 9/11 you get uh, an increase in american imperial action abroad and massive surveillance and i think a lot of this is linked to the experience in the 30s yeah and something that i think and it's funny because he's a social scientist but i think a key part <laughs> of human nature that he missed is that it's not easy to make power give itself up. It's a right. it's a rare thing. Uh, there have been times in the past where that has um, happened, but it's very rare for power to just give itself up when it's not needed anymore. Uh, so this idea that once the threat is over, you know, we can give up these tactics, whatever the existential threat of the Cold War is, and you know, relinquish the stranglehold on on the system that we have, uh, all that ended up happening, and I think you touched on this in uh, the book, is that they just kept generating new existential crises to justify their own existence and to keep expanding. So it just went straight to the Muslim or the terrorist threat and so forth, and they're always generating uh, new fears of something it was uh, al-qaeda isis whatever and north korea <laughs> the state just keeps yeah yeah north north korea right now things just keep expanding we hear about right. boko haram for a second there's always something and it's always kicking it down the road it's always kicking that can down the road we're going to take care of it uh later and that was interesting to see how it this wasn't always the case and how spire kind of posited it as a temporary thing and it just ended up not being that and we just take it for granted now that's something that your book kind of made clear too that there was a pre and a post this it wasn't always these think tanks these intellectuals and that we just take for granted and something else with your book i've read a lot of these thinkers social scientists etc and i know them in vacuums as far as their ideas but your book for example, the university in exile so at the new school, something I didn't know about till I read your book. You do a good job of not having examined them in a vacuum, but kind of showing them an interrelated system as a scene, you know, how they uh, influenced each other, played off each other, how they were peers, both in the Weimar uh, Republic, like, for example, people like Max Weber and hearing mm-hmm. how he kind of interacted with Spire and how all these exiles come here, they go to school together. There's a lot of interplay. And for example, people know I've talked about like Leon Festinger who created the idea of cognitive dissonance and when prophecy fails and um, Irving Janus. And they also like worked at Rand. A lot of prominent uh, intellectuals um, did time at Rand. They're in the military. And can, can you explain how that became a thing? How a lot of these exiles and people who came out together ended up being from academics yeah. and intellectuals to becoming military operatives? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great point. And, and just probably the most famous person to work for Rand was John von Neumann, which is Rand is really critical to developing the computer. You know, it's it, Rand is where game theory really took off as a means to analyze international politics. Monte Carlo methods. Have you ever heard of Model UN? 
Spire essentially came up yes. with, with the idea. Of course, no, of course, uh, Spire Spire essentially came up with the idea of like simulation as a means to model international politics at rand, right? So, so many of the ideas that continue to structure how we think about the world, particularly ideas in social science, were created at rand. And I think it's really, really interesting because I think it, it highlights the importance of trauma and it sort of links the two points. So, I, I really think the United States all the institutions of U.S. foreign policy are, are institutions designed to deal with crises, right? They're literally crisis institutions made right after the biggest crisis in U.S. history, World War II, and proceeded before the next biggest crisis, the Cold War, right? So it's not a surprise that, this, that we're constantly feeling, even though by far the United States is the most powerful nation on earth, at least militarily. Say what you want to will, you will about the economy, but like it's insanely powerful militarily. But we talk as if we're constantly under threat of ISIS invasion. It's really insane when you think of, when you think about it from a quote unquote rational perspective. And I think that highlighting trauma is really important because the trauma of Nazi national socialism's rise is really what pushes all of these intellectuals who, who fancy themselves socialists. And even it's important to recognize after they came to the United States, they, were, they weren't particularly socialist on foreign policy or what we would consider to be socialist, but they, they were socialist in terms of economic policy. You know, They argued in favor of redistribution. They argued in favor of a strong welfare state. But the trauma of Nazism essentially led them to promote an imperial American foreign policy. And I think it's that trauma, which is just so foundational because you have to uh, remember, like everyone has to remember, like these guys are, are, are really one of the first people to come uh, to, to grow up in what we would consider to be modern times, right? In the teens and the twenties, the radios developed, printing gets cheaper. Um, you have all, you have like electricity, you have modern uh, sewer systems in cities, you have mass transit systems. So these are people who are uh, really confronting the, the problems of marginality for the first time. And one of the first things that happens in their own political experience is that the Nazis win, right? So for them, the Nazis are always on the verge. There's always a, a Nazi threat on the ver on the horizon, right? It turns first into the Soviets, and then later it turns into ISIS and 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 all these people, like you mentioned. And there's in fact a direct connection there. So Paul Wolfowitz's advisor was this guy Albert Wallstetter, who worked at Rand with Speyer, right? So there's like a direct connection between these people and the logics that they use to understand U.S. foreign policy. So essentially, in the 30s wanting to prevent another Nazi Germany from rising to power. Really, in the 30s, they wanted to defeat Nazi Germany, of course, because it was uh, still in existence. They joined the American state because they viewed the American state as basically the the uh, the, uh, the the holding case of, of Western civilization and the only means by which they'll defend, quote unquote, Western civilization. And from then on, they liked it. You know, it gave them power, all these intellectuals. It gave them prestige and it made them feel like they were actually doing something in the world. They weren't just writing research articles, but they were actually helping to defeat an existential threat to the world. So I think that's what pushed a lot of them into the state, and into organizations like RAND after the war. And uh, a bunch of famous people work there, like Kenneth Arrow, John Nash, etc. And uh, one thing that's find interesting, it's not just an existential threat, but I think it's safe to say that it's an existential threat to Jewish people particularly. And I think uh, even like Spire was right. married to a Jewish uh, woman, and there were a lot of um, Jewish people who were in the university in exile and making these innovations at Rand. And I was curious about to what extent did um their jewishness and not just that but having been traumatized by 
the Nazi Germany while being Jewish, how that uh, affected their outlook. And also, um, and also like uh, you mentioned to me off air about how a lot of these people were also children of people who fled the pogroms in the Soviet Union, <laughs> had served in World War II. And so and this is becoming obsessed with existential threats. Like also, how did it relate to the cult, the early culture of Israel? Well, that that's a really interesting thing. So, so Speyer wasn't himself Jewish, but the milieu in which he of which he came of age was certainly Jewish. Karl Mannheim was Jewish, and all, basically all of his friends were Jewish. And it's always something. And I'm kind of just working this out myself right now. So this isn't you know a hundred percent conclusion. I've written a little about this, um, but I haven't fully worked it out. But it's always struck me as as interesting that so many of the people. Who worked for Rand were uh, were Jewish, right? People like I said, Wallstetter before Albert Wallstetter, Bernard Brody, Daniel Ellsberg, um, some people who consulted a little bit for Rand, like Kissinger um, and Speyer was connected to Jews. And I think it's really interesting um, for two things. So first, the, the practical matter is in the late 1940s or 50s, if you were Jewish, you weren't probably weren't going to have a have a career in the State Department, right? Which is a pretty generally racist, um, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant institution. It wasn't particularly welcoming to, to Jews or other racial or ethnic groups that weren't white uh, Protestants, right? So Rand, in fact, has I think a diversifying effect on what we'll call the U.S. foreign policy establishment or what Obama called the blob, right? Because you, it's a pseudo-academic institution, and though Jews were still largely barred from um, until late 40s from a lot of these institutions, there were quotas, etc., they could at least get through Rand. And, and it's my, my hunch is that why so many Jews were obsessed with nuclear war is, like you said, their entire historical experience since the late 19th century has uh, – and, and of course, previously, the previous – thousand years has been one of oppression and, and constant existential threats. So a lot of the people were either the sons, uh, mostly sons, uh, sons or, or grandsons of people who had fled czarist Russia because of the pogroms or had been uh, or, or um, knew people who had died, had cousins who had died in the Holocaust, you know, second cousins who were killed in the Holocaust, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so they were uh, really interested and, and, and focused on preventing another existential threat from dominating the world after Nazism, which was why so many of them, I, I think at least, dedicated themselves to fighting the Soviet Union as strongly as uh, as they did and eventually rising to really important foreign policy positions, right? And um, how I, I think, uh, how I, is, um, I'm not really a, a historian of Israel per se, but uh, my hunch is that a similar thing was going on about fears of existential threats in Israel at the time, right? Because the Holocaust had just happened. I believe one third approximately of world Jewry was killed, right? So one in three Jews worldwide was killed uh, during the Holocaust. Um, and so the idea that the Jews had no one else to rely on to save themselves was probably, I would imagine, pretty prevalent amongst people at the time, right? So you have this constant fear of existential threat, which you see reflected in the earlier nuclear strategies, but also um, and Jewish communities worldwide, right? So that's a really interesting thing. And and one more thing that I'd like to add is that um, these these fears didn't always necessarily express themselves in these sort of negative projects preventing something. But um, have you ever heard of this guy named Walt Whitman Rostow? No. So Rostow was the national security advisor. Um, 
he was a national security advisor in the 60s, and he was the guy who came up with um, this thing called modernization theory, which was the idea that societies existed on a spectrum from basically less developed to most developed. And what he wanted to do was to, to quote unquote, develop uh, the world. And Rostow was also of Jewish descent. And what I think he was trying to do was essentially, uh, so he understood the Jewish experience of assimilation to be uh, one about quote unquote, becoming modern. And he essentially wanted to repeat what happened to the Jewish communities of Europe and the United States in the late 19th and 20th centuries, that is becoming from a quote unquote, feudal society living in the shtetl or the Jewish ghettos and becoming part of society on a world scale. So there is this very positive idea that Rostow had, which is that he would modernize the world, right? And this, of course, is development, as I'm sure many of the listeners know, led to a lot of actually awful circumstances, but it emerged from this positive vision. So I think it's just important to take these guys seriously because too many historians, um, really not ones writing today at all, but but in the 70s and the 80s, just viewed these guys as sort of non-understandable jerks in the wake of 1968, right? 1968 was to a large degree um, criticizing all of these guys. And I think it's just important to take their humanity into account and not to excuse them, but to empathize with them and understand why they made the choices that they did. Um, one more time, what was that guy's name again? Uh, Walt Rostow, R-O-S-T-O-W. R-O-S-T-O-W? Yes, Okay, that's that's interesting. Um, was Spire still a socialist by the end? I mean, in what sense was he still a socialist if he was? I think that he, in the sense that he really thought capitalism needed to be tamed, right? So what's really interesting about these guys is that they kind of got rid of the capitalist critique, right? So in the 20s, they're, they're constantly talking about capitalism and how it, how it works vis-a-vis socialism. But really after Hitler, they kind of abandoned the idea that capitalism is a problem and they focus solely on this thing called totalitarianism. So Speyer, I mean, he never quite states this, but from what I know, I spent 10 years thinking about this guy, Jesus Christ, but uh, spent 10 years thinking about him. And it's, it's, from my understanding, he would have, he would have agreed with things like income redistribution, you know, a heavily regulated stock market, a robust welfare state domestically. But he wasn't as, you know, what we'd consider to be, he didn't believe in socialist international organizing. He thought that was a dream that would never take place. And he believed that the United States needed to do whatever was necessary to defeat the Soviet Union, even if it meant overthrowing socialist governments, right? So there's a tension in their thought that they never quite reconciled. This is a very basic question, but I, I yeah, I want to make <laughs> no. sure that I'm not taking any knowledge for granted um, in the listeners. So what is a defense sexual? Like, like what actually is it? That's... That, the way I define it is basically sociologically. So I think it's really a defense intellectual only exists after World War II. And it's someone who moves between the network of institutions that were created after the war, places like think tanks or academic centers like MIT's Center for International Studies and the government, right? So that, you know, they're in the government for a time and then they go to the think tank. And maybe they're in the think tank for a few years, and then they go to John Hopkins's School of International uh, School um, School of International Studies, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's basically people who make their career being intellectuals 
about foreign policy. And just to take a recent example, someone like Paul Wolfowitz, right? So Wolfowitz is in the Bush administration. He helps lead to the disaster in Iraq. Uh, Iraq. And then he goes to the World Bank, and then he resigns from the World Bank, and then he goes to the American Enterprise Institute, and he's constantly involved with John Hopkins's school, et cetera, et cetera. So it's people who navigate these institutions. It's a it's a social figure. It's an economic type. Now, something about this. There's a couple of book chapters, and I just want you to not book chapters, chapter titles that I want you to um, kind of break down the chapter title and what it's uh, referring to. Sure. So you mentioned one is the social role of the intellectual um, exile. What is the scope of that chapter about? So that's really interesting where you brought up uh, Horkheimer and uh, uh, the Frankfurt, sorry, then I brought up <laughs> the Frankfurt School and Horkheimer. So basically that chapter explains why certain exiles like Speyer thought it was their duty to join the state and why other intellectuals, particularly in that chapter, Horkheimer, thought that it wasn't their their duty to join the state. And it basically had to do with the possibilities of present politics. So on one hand, you have someone like Horkheimer arguing that in the era of fascism and capitalism, a capitalist descendants, the best an intellectual could do was, was he referred to them, I believe, as messages in a bottle. So the idea is that you'd write essays and there'd be a message in the bottle, and hopefully in, in, in several years or decades or whenever the historical conditions were, were good, someone would find your essay, Horkheimer's essay, and they would create a better world. And that was the best an intellectual could do. But someone like Speyer was really a harsh critic of that idea because he thought it was uh, politically quiescent, and he thought that it would basically it's basically lying down in the face of Nazis. And he instead argued that what an intellectual needed to do was to, uh, like I said before, join the state because that was the only way to guarantee that these existential threats would be defeated. And I actually think that's a really critical question for the left. And I'm sure most most people on the left would disagree with me. Um, but the question is, like, what does a left-wing intellectual do in a moment where it doesn't look like the left-wing is about to actually win power and America, the American empire is doing a lot of damage to the world, right? Do you think a left-wing intellectual, for example, should take a seat on the National Security Council? Even if it's a corrupt institution, you don't like the American state, you think it does a lot of evil, do you think a left-wing intellectual should join the, uh, the state institution um, to make policy in however small a way better, maybe say a few, save a few lives? Horkheimer would say no, and Speyer would say yes. Right? And I think that's actually a really difficult question for intellectuals to answer because they have access to types of organizations that most people don't. And what do you do if you're someone who's critical of these organizations? Right? Do you just speak truth to power? Or do you actually try to affect how power is used in the world? I think it's a really difficult question. You know, I don't have an answer, but it's a tough one. Okay. Uh, chapter three is called Public Opinion, Propaganda, and Democracy in Crisis. Uh, so basically in that chapter, I explore why Speyer thought public opinion was so bad and what do you do, how he uh, resolved the tension between public opinion and, and um, uh, its potential negative effects and, and fighting an existential war. And that's the chapter where I talk about he developed this sort of this sort of not ham handed, but this argument where you could basically eliminate uh, public opinion's impact on U.S. foreign policy um, with the idea that you do it when the crisis was over, right? So we said, you know, as long as democracy is in crisis, you could kind of do whatever you want. You could be more autocratic, but when the crisis is over, you don't have to. Um, this is a title that jumped out at me. 
Psychological warfare and theory practice. Yeah, so in that one, that's when I talk about his uh, work for the uh, World War, the, uh, the state, the Office of War Information during World War II. And I basically use the propaganda directives, the, the documents that were intended to guide, like the propaganda, like the artists and the radio programs. So Speyer wrote the guidances for them, essentially. And I essentially um, tracked those his, his propaganda war against Nazi Germany from 1944 until early uh, 1946, when he became part of the occupation uh, government and I and I show how his ideas about psychological warfare were eventually um, became to affect policy and this gets a little arcane uh, and you could cut this out but essentially a lot of historians have argued that ideas don't actually matter in foreign policy that it's mostly interests or intellectuals don't actually have an effect they just do what the elites want them to but what I wanted to show is that ideas actually do matter and they're reflected in policy documents. Um, in World War II. That idea that ideas don't matter, is that related to the concept of, uh, what is it, real politics? Yes, exactly. So the, it's the, the notion that there's this quote-unquote objective world out there, and it's all security and balances of power and interest, and that like ideas don't really matter in the end. And I don't actually think that's true at all, and I think that's actually quite a conservative uh, thing to to believe about international affairs, and I think ideas have a, a really important causal impact on policies and what policies states pursue. This is something I was curious about: the making of a defense intellectual. Right. So that's a chapter I, I really it's, it takes place after the the post war period, and what I tried to show in that is like why didn't Speyer just return to an academic life, which is you know a relatively easy easy life. And uh, I argue that he didn't because the war, and I think this is really critical for understanding why all these intellectuals joined organizations like Rand and other think tanks, was that the war made them realize that actually having an effect on the world and having the ability to exert power was really enticing. And that it, they didn't want to, I think the way I put it in the book is that they didn't want to write about the world, but they wanted to affect it. Right. And so there's this opportunity, you know, there's what, what we call, uh, Max Weber called these elective affinities these affinities between intellectuals like Speyer and the military, where the military wanted them and the intellectuals wanted the military. And so they sort of joined together to create organizations like Rand. Got it. A question I have, <laughs> what was the actual bulk of most of his work? Was it mostly the, during the Cold War, was it mostly domestic stuff and trying to uh, do propaganda domestically? Were they were was Spire and Rand involved in foreign things as as far as like say CIA interventions in foreign countries trying to stop um uh elected officials or rulers who might be sympathetic to communism like I know the CIA did a lot of st stuff like that where you know try to put their own puppets who were sympathetic to America and stop anyone abroad who might be sympathetic to communism was Spire and Rand and his cohorts um, on the domestic end of fighting the cold war, the foreign end, or what was the actual scope? Yeah, that's a great question. So Spire, well, Rand had sort of a, a hand in all of those pies, right? It was really involved. Rand would provide the research that would help guide a lot of the policies pursued by the American government, uh, to a lesser degree, the CIA, but certainly the Air Force and other elements of the State Department and military. But Spire himself is actually a pretty influential guy. He wrote a lot about psychological warfare against, first, the Soviet Union, and second, the German Democratic Republic, or East Germany. And what I found in my research that Spire actually had a pretty significant effect 
on how psychological warfare uh, was conducted against both of those states. So essentially, Speyer built on a lot of this interwar sociological theory uh, that argued that totalitarian governments were essentially run totally by a political elite at the top. Um, so what he did was that he argued with regards to the Soviet Union that you needed to basically send false flags or false information to try to disrupt the trust that members of the political elite of the Soviet Union had with each other. And if you were essentially able to screw with the Soviet elite, you would uh, it would trickle down throughout the society and it would destabilize the Soviet Union. So that's on one hand. And on the other hand, he argued that the German Democratic Republic wasn't yet fully totalitarian. So what you needed to do was use psychological warfare and propaganda to help inspire a mass resistance in uh, East Germany. And what I found, some classified documents um, that were recently released, that that Speyer's ideas helped um, push the United States to conduct a pretty intensive psychological warfare campaign designed to stir up mass resistance in East Germany in um, the first half of 1953, which eventually uh, helped lead to the uh, famous June 1953 uprising that was eventually crushed uh, by the the, um, the East Germans and the Soviet Union. Uh, so he was really influential on, on that sort of early stage psychological warfare, because you've got to remember in the early Cold War, no American right was really ready to fight another third world war, but they wanted to destroy the Soviet Union. And they tried to do so primarily at first with uh, psychological warfare. And Speyer was instrumental in that process. Now, the last title, uh, I want to jump to chapter eight. The title of this chapter I found pretty interesting, Social Science and Its Discontents. Um, what is that about? Yeah. So that that that's a pretty. I mean, I, I like I, I like that chapter a lot. It's a personal favorite. So do you know how like a lot of social science today is is quantitative in the sense that it's really math driven and there's a lot of models and there's equations and sociology and economics and political yes. science, right? So um, so there's a lot of that, but but actually. Um, the Rand Corporation, which was influential in some sense to that uh, to that development, they used game theory, as I mentioned earlier, and all that stuff. But uh, the people who worked um, with and under Speyer actually had a totally different view of social science. For them, they thought like equations and quantitative knowledge and models were actually kind of ridiculous because you couldn't abstract human life in any meaningful sense, right? To, to write an equation that tries to explain why someone made a particular economic choice, Speyer and a lot of his colleagues thought was kind of ridiculous. So they had a totally different view of social science, where it was essentially what I would ta- term current history, where you had to use qualitative information, you had to use your judgment, you had to use your wisdom in order in order to understand politics. And there was a big fight within the Rand Corporation between people like Speyer, who thought that qualitative knowledge was the best way to understand politics and people like um let's say albert wallstetter or herman khan who are much more entranced with quantitative knowledge right and for my i mean i'm a historian so i'm obviously biased but i think spire you know if we could take anything away from that i think he was to some degree right about this is that i think uh, quantitative knowledge while it's a useful toolbox in the social scientists toolkit i think it, it, people can um perhaps there is a tendency to rely on that too much and to have a faith in social science as a quote unquote science that it's not, which it really isn't. Right. And I think a lot of, um, you saw this recently, I know you're into psychological research. I'm sure you're familiar with the replicability crisis going on in psychology now, right? Where it's very difficult 
for people to reproduce these studies. So I think it's important for social scientists of all stripes, historians included, to be much more um, to have be much more humble and modest about the claims that they're actually able to make with social science, right? Because then you get kind of junk social science like Malcolm Gladwell, where people think there's a, a formula to how you succeed in life. Uh, and it's just not true, right? Life is very complicated. It's informed by a lot of different contexts, et cetera, et cetera. And social science, while it's a worthy goal to try to you know, um, highlight some specific causal factors, I think we've gone too far in the quantitative direction and need to go much, far, uh, much further back to qualitative information. You see it right now in the degrading of the humanities. Of oh, yeah. And, and there's a and lot that, of glib stuff happening, like what you said with Malcolm Gladwell. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the humanities and the, that is a little bit... Um, I mean that's a whole other show, but I know what you're I, I know what you're talking about. Um, the last thing I want to ask you is, can you give an example of like specific things from the legacy of Rand? Like, for example, particularly like one or two ideas that were particularly influential, whether good or heinous or whatever. But like, what is an example of the type of thing that? Uh, Rand might implement or decide or or use their influence to um, convince people of because I feel like we've been talking in uh, very broad strokes and I just if people just maybe an example of one or two things that uh, might have sprung forth from the mind of uh, Hans Speyer and his cohorts. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, so to take one one good one. So there was something. There was a famous book written by actually another European exile uh, named Nathan Lightes in the early 1950s called "The Operational Code of the Politburo." The Politburo, of course, being one of the central institutions in the Soviet Union and in communist societies, um, and in and the Soviet communist society, right? And so, what Lightes did was that he read all of the works of Lenin. And I believe uh, some Marx and some Stalin as well. And from reading all of Lenin's works, he developed something called the operational code, which he said, like, this is how communists view the world. And if you're able to determine how they view the world through this, this operational code, you could you could know how to negotiate with them. And so Leidis's book, the again, the operational code of the Politburo was used during the Korean War armistice negotiations in the early 1950s. And the Americans were convinced by Lightes that the, that, that the, um, that the communists who they were negotiating with on the other side of the table were actually, they couldn't be trusted because the operational code showed that they were always going to be, uh, they were going to be, be bent on the West's death and destruction. And so this helped the Korean War go on for longer than it otherwise would have because they were convinced that they couldn't actually trust uh, the communist, their communist negotiators, right? So that's one way. So this book wasn't particularly helpful. No, well, I mean, no, it wasn't. <laughs> a lot. There's a lot more dead people, I would say, because of it. Uh, and there's a whole other thing about accountability and how do you make expertise better. And then probably the most famous thing Rand is known for is nuclear strategy. Right. So the idea about whether you should or shouldn't bomb cities, the idea about how you should structure your nuclear forces, the idea where you should place America's bases. Right. America has hundreds of bases overseas. Rand was really influential in shaping the military's thought on that, about where all of these things uh, should be to the point that um, the U.S. government used them a lot for that. And probably the most famous thing Rand is known for is Daniel Ellsberg. Um, copied the Pentagon Papers from his office at the Rand Corporation. 
So that was a uh, that was a study that they had at Rand. It was produced by the Department of Defense, and Ellsberg actually copied all of these files uh, from his office at Rand. And in fact, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Beautiful uh, Beautiful Mind. It came out in two thousand one, but John Nash uh, did a lot of his best work at Rand, and so did Kenneth Arrow, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a really really important institution to American uh, life in the twentieth century, second half. Okay, great. Um... Well, Daniel Ellsberg is a whole other topic I'd like to talk about too. But yeah. we're like we're like at at the end, but yeah, he's he's something. Um, yeah, I interviewed him last week. Oh, really? It was a interesting. Ex- yeah, not like two weeks ago. It was a really interesting experience to uh, to say the least. We should we should have another one. Well, we could talk about social science and Rand. I mean, sorry, social science and Ellsberg. There's a lot. There's a lot to be said about social science. I, I teach on the history of social science here and so you could see how it developed over time you know there's a lot of really interesting ways to attack that <laughs> in, the, in like uh two minutes just for people who don't know uh that was supposed to be the last question but i want people to know what daniel ellsberg is so can you just give a quick summary of just just who he is maybe in a future show we can uh, expand on him yeah but. sure no so ellsberg was a, a guy who is actually what i would call the second generation of defense intellectuals he was born in 1931 he uh, was too young to serve in World War II, but he was a Marine in the 50s, and then he became uh, an economic theorist. He did some time at Harvard and um, MIT, and he uh, was actually worked for RAND and was particularly important in terms of nuclear planning and uh, nuclear strategy. He consulted for the government. But in uh, the 70s, uh, in the early 70s, he basically... Um, uh, so Rand obviously had a lot had a lot of access to top secret documents, and one of these documents uh, involved the United States's history with uh, Vietnam from the 40s and the 60s. It was called U.S. Vietnam Relations, and it basically demonstrated that the president Lyndon B. Johnson and Cong- uh, sorry Lyndon B. Johnson had lied to the American public and Congress about the the war in Vietnam. And what Ellsberg did is that he illegally copied this top secret information and disseminated it to newspapers. And in fact, uh, that new Steven Spielberg movie, The Post, is about the decision whether the Washington Post should publish the Pentagon Papers or not. And they eventually did publish them. Ellsberg was put on trial. And amazingly, he was acquitted, which is so crazy in today's world where whistleblowers get thrown away for the entirety of their lives, or they have to go uh, you know, to, to Russia like Snowden, or they have to be freed by a presidential order like Chelsea Manning. But Ellsberg was somehow acquitted, and he basically became a, a very famous critic of the American empire and American foreign policy. That's an example, yeah, that's an example of privilege actually working for uh, yes. good. That's something. Yeah. What was something yeah. crazy? I, didn't, I knew about Daniel Ellsberg. I had no idea that Spielberg movie was actually about Daniel Ellsberg. Yeah, well, I think it's less about him. I think it's about like Spielberg did that did that cloying American stuff where he makes it about the nobility of the American press. Oh, um, so I think he says, and yeah, I, dude, I cannot. <laughs> yeah, like my heart sinks when Spielberg like glorifies the Cold War, which he does all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's why that's why I was surprised to hear that uh, he was involved. But now that you tell me the angle that he took in it, yeah, it totally makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it's it's yeah bad news. <laughs> So I'm going to let you have the last word. If there's anything that you think um, we should have covered in this topic that I didn't get to, or if you think you just want to plug anything you have coming out besides the book, just feel free. It's your space. No, I, I will plug Champagne Sharks. Contribute to their Patreon. It's important 
to have these things funded. That's all I need to plug. Uh, good, good man. Good man. I appreciate it. No problem, man. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, one last thing. Did you give your Twitter account? Oh, no. If not, please mention it. My, my, my Twitter account is uh, at dvesner. I think I have a whopping 567 followers, so I'm what you might call a Twitter celebrity. So feel free. <laughs> feel free to yeah. follow Let's me. get his numbers up. Let's get his numbers up, people. <laughs> thanks a lot. All right, I'll, put in the, I'll put in the show notes, too. <laughs> All right, so thanks for uh, joining us, and uh, we'll definitely do a follow-up about uh, Daniel Ellsberg, because I would like to talk about that. Yeah, I, I, I just published something on him in that LARB, uh, and I have a lot of thoughts about him and, and what it says about expertise so that'd be really fun all right great so i will actually put that article in the link today I'll, oh cool uh, the show notes great so uh take care dan and have a good one take care thanks a lot bye